Welcome to Double Helix History. I'm Jerome de Groot. And I'm Matthew Stallard. And over the next couple of podcasts, we're going to be exploring all kinds of interesting topics around the idea of DNA and the past. So, Jerome, you started this project about six months, a year ago. What was the motivation behind that? Well, I'm really interested in how people get their past, how people understand um, themselves and in relation to the past. And so I got quite interested in family history about five years ago. But obviously, over the last two years, I mean, a little bit longer, but over the last two years, very uh, spectacularly, uh, genetics um, be, are being used in family history investigation hugely now by nearly everyone that does any kind of family history and, if, and indeed millions of people who haven't even got much interest in family history being persuaded uh, to do some kind of DNA test to find out about their past, their ethnicity, their background. Um, so I became very interested in this because it seems to me that we understand ourselves through the past uh, in particular ways and this is a new way of doing it. And um, what, what's the particular sort of method of research that you've chosen and why did you choose that? The research um, that we're going to be sharing with you over the next couple of podcasts um, is based on a set of interviews and focus groups that we've been undertaking uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, in the United States uh, and in Australia over the past 12 months or thereabouts. And the reason for undertaking research in this way was uh, that we wanted to talk to a sort of relative, relatively um, solid group of people. We've talked to about 70 or 80 people over the last 12 months. And we wanted to talk to family historians particularly because um, it was my understanding that family historians have a very clear sense of what they do when they approach the past. Uh, they're very, very smart in terms of thinking about evidence, in terms of thinking about organisation of source. Uh, they have a very firm methodology and they're often very well skilled. They've often spent a lot of time, decades even, working in, in this area. They've often gone on lots of courses. They share knowledge with one another. Um, but, I, but, but very few of them are actually geneticists and very few of them have a kind of working knowledge of uh, DNA uh, in any real sense. Um, so I was fascinated by what would happen where you had this group of, uh, of people who had a scholarly apparatus who had a kind of set of ideas of how they might approach the past. I was fascinated by seeing how the impact of uh, genetic testing would change, if it did change, the way that they might approach uh, their past. Well, if it hadn't been for the, for the DNA, it would never have occurred to me that you could find people who you knew that you must be, you, you knew with this common ancestry, that I've gone back to sort of a 10th great grandparents on one side, but I would never have dreamt that I could ever find anybody descended from them. And now I know that I can. Mm. It's hard work, and you can only do it if they've done a lot, but it can be good fun. And I, I didn't know, I obviously didn't... Know what to I didn't, I didn't look into it sufficiently in advance, I think, or else it didn't happen. And I think a lot of people get ancestry tests or whatever because they think that's going to give them their family tree. Yeah. Yeah. They don't realise that all it is is another tool. Mm. Unless you've actually done some genealogical work and built up the basis of a tree, it's going to be nothing to you because you have nothing to compare your matches to. Mm. 
on fortune. That's the way ancestry sell it, though, don't yes, they? Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. sell it, you know, oh, look at these discoveries popping yeah. up and things like that. My husband insisted on having his ancestry done right, and I started to prepare him an ancestry tray. And then he went afterwards, oh, I really only want to know whether I was Celtic or not. <laughs> <laughs> I just I got to test only six months ago mm-hmm. and I just wanted to track the Irish that had gone to America and um, the family name and um, I'm, I'm not too enthusiastic about it it's, it's quite good but I haven't found anything particularly but I'm interested like some of the others in medical history and I'm quite interested when you can find out but the samples are got from my family. I got a group done, and I'll just await and watch. Mm-hmm. But there's a genetic disease in our family that I'd like to track. Mm. Mm. Others, what are your thoughts? I got mine as a gift from my daughter for Mother's Day. She was hoping I wasn't really her mother. <laughs> <laughs> Tragically, I am. She has to have been tested then. Yes. Has she? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, if she, did she do hers as well? No. Okay. Um, and I was extraordinarily sceptical, and I would never have bought the test because I, I get enraged by those ancestry ants. Um, and I was very surprised to discover that it was able to correctly identify my first, second, and third cousins, you know, ones mm. that I had known anyway and, and had been tested. So I was really shocked about that. Um, How accurate I mean, it was. Sorry? How accurate it was. Yes, I was, yes. Yeah, I was genuinely surprised about that. Yeah. I just thought it was a load of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And also at the, um, the forum last year, um, you know, we've been sort of told that if you get up to third cousins, anything beyond is just noise, genetically noise, so you cannot find anyone beyond third cousins, mm-hmm. and that's not true. Mm-hmm. But for me, the big thrill was um, a particular um, family that I've been looking for for 40 years, just complete mystery, and I've had a lot of circumstantial evidence that... You know, this guy was the son of this family, but no mm. proof. And I was able to match with the descendants of, you know, this person's, his, his sister's children and, you know, and three people descended from his uncle. So I've got a family tree back to 1219 on that page, which is really very exciting. Yeah. Oh, I'm envious. No, for me, it was about the fact that I've been looking for 40 years yeah. for this fellow and could not have done it without the DNA. Mm. Yeah. So, um, tell us a bit more about the DNA. Yeah, I don't know anything about what? DNA. <laughs> uh, I really don't know, I really barely spell it. Um, but, the, <laughs> but what I'm interested in is really what people make of it. Uh, uh, I'm not, well, I am obviously interested in, in whether it's um, rightly done or whether yeah, the sequencing is, is, is smart and thoughtful I'm interested in all these things but but my interest has been in um in what people make of this rather than necessarily what it actually is um and you might suggest that that's actually the case anyway because DNA only means in comparison to other DNA and it gets only read in certain ways so it's all relatively uh subjective what it means um that's not a scientific view, uh, but what I mean is what it means to an individual, uh, how it changes what they think about themselves, how it might change what they think about the past. All these things are very much um, a subjective thing, I'd say. Um, DNA. Well, uh, in 1953, it was first described by uh, Crick and Watson in their famous paper. Um, and since then, it has entered the popular imagination, I'd say. And I, I, I would 
I would argue that it's probably the most well-known scientific thing, not that it's a scientific thing, but it's well-known uh, part of scientific discourse um, in the West, at least. I think if you grabbed nearly anyone, they would know what DNA largely was, but push them any further and they probably say one of two things. They say double helix uh, and they say, say building blocks of life. And for that reason, I'm kind of quite convinced that DNA has become super iconic. It's so uh, difficult to understand that it's become just a thing that no one really does much about. They do it you know, school and that's it, they move, they move on. So we're all quite comfortable, we know what DNA is, but actually push anyone, I don't think anyone really knows. Uh, at a kind of lay level. That's maybe a bit unfair, but it just feels like, yeah, there's this kind of, it's this icon, everyone knows what it looks like, what it is, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ask, ask people to describe a little bit more what a double helix is, and you know, that starts to fall apart. What, you know, what is DNA, how does it work? All these kinds of things. So it's quite fascinating. Um, for that, so it's in everyone's mind. Everyone knows this thing exists. But so for that reason, it's really fascinating because you get when you get people doing genetic genealogy, they're um, they're entering into um, they're entering into something which they think they understand, <laughs> possibly. You know, the, the most famous uh, version of, of DNA tests is paternity tests, of course. So everyone sort of seems to know that there's something which proves something. Uh, there's a truth claim in DNA testing. So they enter into this thing kind of quite willingly because there's a confidence. And then when the information comes back, I'm not completely sure, A, anyone knows what to do with it, and B, anyone is expecting what's coming back. You know, when we were um, in Australia, we met loads of people who'd had sort of revelation and found all kinds of things out or discovered things they didn't necessarily want to find out. And this is from a group of people who are quite smart about this. You know, the family historians are already you know, aware that there's probably going to be some kind of um, uh, things in their past that they're not necessarily aware of and a bit, not might wish to be a bit careful of. Um, and so, yeah, this, this community themselves are finding things out they weren't anticipating and you just think that's, that's, that's amazing. And how much, of it, how much of the science do you kind of understand? Do you comfortable that you understand? There's a category here of yeah. trust it to a certain extent, but I'm not... So, I mean, obviously, that's how we work with most science, uh, most medical yeah. science. But, yeah, I'd be interested in that kind of disjunct that do you're Do we trust it, though, or do we just use it mm. to, to put us into a place where we can do our normal research? Mm. I think it's mm. more accurate than trusting the BBM. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you who the relative doesn't, no, is. No, it doesn't, no. It doesn't tell you as, as much, but it is more accurate. Mm. Yeah. The just knowing doesn't help. So no. you trust the just knowing, mm -hmm. but you still need to do the research yeah. to, to mm -hmm. find yeah. the sure. so yeah. so yeah. it's it's you don't trust it in as much as oh yeah, you're definitely my cousin and then that's the end of it. It's just a tool for parenting. And then nothing to do with social history. No, but, but I'm not interested in the science necessarily. I know, I know you guys have got a science background and love all that stuff. No, but, but I mean, I'm talking about the science. I'm not talking about the. I know you are, but I was just. Gonna, I'm adding a new yeah, point. Okay. I think you know. I, I agree with you that technology and genealogy is working hand in hand to improve all that. I was just going to say that I don't actually think you need to know anything about the science. I, I like the problem-solving side, of it, and we've talked about that a bit before. But 
not from coming from but the But I think a computer, you know, using a computer to do some analysis, in effect, is, is a variation of science. No, you think so? Okay, well, yeah, I wouldn't mm. be thinking that. It's, it's a tool. It's very, it's very far away from <laughs> history in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Although well, actually, great. a lot well, of well, historians about data mining yes, and network analysis. Yeah, like it's nothing like a history stuff. I don't no, think it's not. very far away from history at all. No, I don't think history's always been about analysing data and looking yeah, for patterns. History is a science, yeah. it's just a different type of it, science. It's a science in the humanities. I see DNA as a tool, not as a separate endeavour. I mean, I see it as a tool to help me get what I want to know. And that has a historical context. And because otherwise, what am I doing anyway? If I'm, what, why am I doing it? And I just see it as a, another way. Um, I mean, I could go and learn to read German handwriting and spend my time in German parish mm. register offices and, because I can't read the German handwriting, but it's a different skill that I don't have. Mm. But I find the DNA is a tool yeah, to help me bridge a gap that I didn't have. And so I guess that's why the technology So DNA, yeah, essentially DNA bubbled along as a family history technology, uh, not doing very much. Um, it was very famously used um, in several cases, including the um, uh, the work around uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, Thomas Jefferson's relationship with his uh, slave Sally Hemming. Um, and that was quite high profile in the late 90s and early 21st century, but very expensive uh, to do that kind of work. When Steve Jobs had his um, whole genome sequenced, it uh, took uh, a long, long time and cost him a million dollars or something like that. So, you know, there's been this kind of ability to do certain things with DNA for years. Um, what has changed is the, uh, the, the cost of the work on um, genetic material come down substantially um, and that means that you can as a company offer excuse me an actual um, uh, a kind of a product which is available for and is achievable so some family historians did do earlier versions of the tests uh, not the different types of tests they were quite expensive and I don't think because they tended to be Because older versions of the tests offered different types of material as a, as a um, for in terms of results, it meant that 
uh, it wasn't as useful for family historians really. It was more results to do with your relationship with the species rather than with your family. So it wasn't very, didn't have much kind of um, uh, sort of structure for family historians. Whereas now, the types of tests that can be done and also the speed of them and the cost means that they're much more useful. So we've had a nice introduction there to family history, genetic genealogy, but maybe it'd be helpful to learn a bit more depth how exactly that works, how you actually do genealogy with genetics. Well, probably best to ask an expert. Um, we, we spoke with Debbie Kennett, who's a um, world-famous genetic genealogist. She came up to Manchester to do a talk at the Irish World Heritage Centre, uh, and we've got a little recording of that right now, and then we had a discussion with Debbie about what she sees as the most important aspects of genetic genealogy at the, at the moment. genealogy and it was my husband after my husband's father passed away that I got involved in genealogy research because we inherited a, a, a number of family photographs and we couldn't identify the people in the photographs so I then started to write to family members to try and work out who all these people were and that gradually sucked me into family history research and then having done that 
And having done some research on my husband's family tree, I decided to research my own family tree. And I've got a very unusual um, maiden name, Cruz, C-R-U-W-Y-S, which um, is very rare. And it, um, the, the family story was that we came from this parish called Cruz Mortchard in North Devon. And they were lords of the manor. And uh, um, I, I was trying to prove that I was connected to this uh, family that lived in the manor house at Cruz Mortchard. And uh, so the, my family history research then focused very much on this one particular surname. I joined the Guild of One Name Studies and ended up doing a one-name study of the Cruz surname. And a number of my fellow members of the Guild of One Name Studies had already started doing Y-DNA projects. And uh, Chris Pomery was one of the very early um, people who was using Y-DNA testing, having started a project back in the year 2000. I went to one of his talks and then decided to set up my own project for the Cruz surname. So that's how I got started in it all. So what this means is that we can, there are different types of DNA tests that we can take, that we can use for our family history research. And the first test is the Y chromosome DNA test. And this was, uh, back in the year 2000, this was the first type of test that was introduced. And um, now, as we saw, only males have a Y chromosome. So you have to, if you have to be a male to take this test, or if you're a female, you have to find male relative with your surname if you to take the test on your behalf. Now the advantage of the Y chromosome is that it um, doesn't go through this recombination process passed on intact from the father to his son. So this can test can actually tell you about the recent ancestry, but it can also go back for thousands and thousands of years. Second test is the mitochondrial DNA test and this follows the all-female line, both males and, so I think I forgot to mention mitochondrial DNA, that's a little sort of circular structure in the cell, um, and both men and women have this, um, and it's passed on intact from the mother to all of her children, but only the, um, the females will pass it on to the next generation. So this case is this all-female line. And then the third type of test is the autosomal DNA test, which looks at those 22 um, recombining chromosomes, and this gives you a representation of your ancestry on all of your family lines, but the family history research is best used for looking at connections within about the last five or six generations. Um, so it's actually quite satisfying if you have a match with, say, a second cousin or a fourth cousin, and you then know that your paper trail research is correct, and you, you've got that additional evidence that your paper trial is correct um, and also it can sometimes lead to new discoveries and I've actually been surprised at how many people have got unexpected results from autosomal DNA tests and all the family secrets really? that are now That's starting to come out huh. and that in itself I think mm. is creating all sorts of new ethical challenges. Absolutely. I mean you, you mentioned um, because of the size of the databases so the mm. ancestry is over seven million at the minute. Ten million 10 now. Million. Oh, has it got? Yeah. Every time I look, it's bigger. Yeah. Uh, Twenty-three and me is up to five or six. Five million, it? yeah. I mean, that's a massive expansion over an eighteen-month period, really, from maybe last last year, maybe early last year. Um, and as you kind of hinted at, there are 
consequences <laughs> about expansion. <laughs> I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about, about that. Has, has it felt to you working in the field that there's a sudden explosion in, in this um, in this in Just, industry? I would say it, in the last year, and that in 2017, more people tested in 2017 alone than in any previous years. That's just sensational, and isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and there was a time, and certainly when I started, we had to explain DNA testing and how it worked and really encourage people to test. Now, because it's being advertised on TV, it, it's, it's expanding beyond the genealogy market. So previously, it was just hardcore genealogists who were doing the testing, especially the Y DNA testing. Now, people are testing, and it's a younger demographic, um, and it's people are doing it just out of curiosity. They see the advertising, and they think that the DNA test will tell them who they are. Uh, so there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of confusion with the new people testing and they don't understand what the results mean, but it is also driving new people to start doing genealogy research. And and I mean, is there a concern amongst the genealogical community that you get essentially what are uh, lots and lots of bits of information which don't then have any context? You know, I, I test for my, you know, I'm 22 and I test to get buy an ancestry kit or I get it for my birthday or whatever, mm -hmm. have it done, and then it, I'm just my data is just left without anything around it. I don't mm. fill in the, the rest of the detail. And so. Well, a lot of genealogists tend to be quite dismissive of this huh. new breed of tester who, they, who just comes in and takes a test and looks at percentages and then doesn't do anything more with it. Um, so th the genealogists are very dismissive of all those so-called ethnicity percentages because we know, if, you know, if you've done your family tree, you know that if you've got 10% Iberian or 10% Italian that comes up in your ethnicity report that it's completely meaningless but the people who haven't done that research do tend to take those sort of things quite seriously and think that it does actually mean something. And are you concerned I mean do you think that's a kind of slightly worrying thing that people might for instance get given a, a test as a, as a gift take it and, and then assume that these things are correct? It is, yes it is quite worrying I've had people writing to me um, who have I had one lady who wrote to me who was really concerned because she came out at 25% Irish and she'd done her family tree and she didn't have any Irish ancestors and she really thought there was some sort of problem with her research and that you know, somebody in her family hadn't told her a big family secret. So I had to write back and explain to her that you know, she shouldn't take those results seriously. Her family tree was perfectly correct. Wow, though, that's a kind uh, of, it can put that doubt in your mind. Yes. Uh, on the other, on the other hand, are there people in your experience that have, for whom, this kind of test has, has confirmed something or has opened up something which they hadn't necessarily anticipated? Well, I've come across a number of people where it's uncovered something they hadn't anticipated, and that's particularly the case with Jewish DNA, which can be detected with um, good confidence with these tests. So, if someone comes out with 50% Jewish ancestry then that means usually they've got a Jewish parent. And I've come across a couple of people who, one person, first of all, he, he didn't um, accept the results and he was actually referred to me by another organization. And um, I had to explain to him that you know, this means that although your family tree shows that you, you know, all your ancestors from England, you do actually have one Jewish, um, it's most likely you've got a Jewish parent. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it probably was his father and he, he then actually was quite accepting of it and embraced his new Jewish heritage. And he was an actor and he'd actually um, sort of was seeking out roles that uh, reflected this uh, Jewish ancestry. Oh, really? Oh, how is yeah. that?
So our final guest for this first episode is Erin Batat, who's a researcher who's worked with Ancestry.com on a number of research projects. And it's a really nice insight to listen to her as she describes the ways in which the algorithms are built and the research is put together to allow genetic genealogies to do the really cool, smart, interesting stuff it does. Absolutely, and what I really like about Erin's work is that she's an historian, so she's coming from a particular point of view. She's interested in, in you know, kind of uh, ways in which this stuff integrates with history. So she's got a very interesting perspective on how we might understand Ancestry's work, particularly in this area. My role at Ancestry.com was to explain the migration patterns of groups of customers who shared common ancestry. So Ancestry DNA would use both customers' genetic data and family tree information that they submitted to identify clusters of people who shared common ancestry. You might think of these as uh, micro-ethnic groups. So for example, groups of people who lived in a remote region of Ireland. And uh, they would use the genetic and family tree information to generate maps that showed the migration patterns of these ancestors over time. And I would analyze the maps and tell a story about uh, what life was like for these people prior to migration, why they left, and what they experienced at their destinations. My task was to figure out the broad settlement patterns of a wide range of ethnic groups, mainly in the United States and in Australia. And so first I would look at historical maps and even recent maps to uh, figure out why these particular groups emerged in relative genetic isolation. Um, And this was usually due to geography. So I figured out the uh, geographic contours of the places where these ancestors were born in order to understand uh, why they developed in genetic isolation. And then I turned to the vast literature on the settlement of the United States during the colonial period and westward expansion and the slave trade, uh, as well as uh, micro histories of particular ethnic groups, such as the Welsh Welsh in Pennsylvania or Sicilians in New York. I um, also turned to census data to locate some of these groups socioeconomically. So Ancestry gave me lists of the most common surnames in these groups, and sometimes I could use those surnames to find out common occupations from the census data or to find out um, uh, a particular um, Uh, ethnic or religious uh, background that could be indicated by their surnames. Sometimes really fascinating and unique stories would emerge from this research. One of the first groups that I studied was a group of people in southwestern Ireland. And I noticed from the maps that there was a concentration of people with shared ancestry in a very tightly bounded region in a boggy area of Western Ireland. And when I looked into this particular region, I learned that it was a hideaway for rebels and outlaws who are fighting against the British stemming back from the 16th century. And so that became a really exciting story to tell and to explain uh, why 
this particular group of people developed in relative genetic isolation. The next episode of this series um, is based primarily in Australia and we'll be talking to some amazing family historians and some amazing scholars about the consequences of DNA and genetic genealogy uh, for the sense of kinship, for family structures. We're going to talk about ethics, we're going to talk about revelation and broadly we're going to talk about bigamy.